Hello and welcome to the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as a psychotherapist, hosting this podcast is a natural fit. Every week, I will invite you into my therapy room where I shall be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice, and they will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. At the end of each episode, I will be joined by my two, yes, two psychotherapist daughters, who will reveal their thoughts and broader insights about my therapy session. It really is three therapists for the price of one. It's definitely worth a listen. Mosin Zaidi, I am so delighted to welcome you onto my podcast. You are a best-selling author, a speaker, and you've been a criminal barrister. And I think now you're a management consultant, which I want to know more about. You're a winner of two prizes, the Polaris Salon Prize and the Lambda Literary Prize, which I'm both impressed by and quite jealous of. And your book, A Dutiful Boy, is a memoir of a gay Muslim's journey to acceptance. And in a way, in the title is the answer to my first question, but I know that you can explain, which is, tell me about a challenge you're facing or have had to overcome. Well, uh, I mean... It's interesting, right, that question, because to put it in simple terms, like when there's a hurdle, right, when there's a literally a, a hurdle in a runner's way, all they have to do is jump over it. But for human beings, for us, whenever there is something difficult going on, usually it's not just as simple as jumping over one thing. There's, it's so multifaceted. So in the answer I'm about to give you, in some ways it sounds really simple, but there's, there's many more layers to it. And that is that um, I grew up, in a poor part of London, in Walthamstow, uh, to very religious Muslim parents. And I became the first person from my school to go to Oxford. Um, And when I got there, I came to terms, or had to come to terms with the fact that I was gay. And I put it in that way because uh, it wasn't just that I was gay and Muslim. Actually, it was that there were so many ways in which I was forced to live outside of the worlds that I was supposed to inhabit. So I've, I've, I've answered that, but in a convoluted way, I think. No, I think you've answered it in a very clear way. And what I get from what you're saying and from your absolutely beautiful book, which I really loved, I have to say, and recommend to anyone listening, as I understood it, being gay wasn't even something that was... Mm. Mm. discussed it wasn't a word that was in your family so you know that you were experiencing your sexuality as as like coming completely outside of what is safe and home and belonging I remember one of the worst things you said in the book is do my parents want a a dead son or a gay son? And that sort of tearing between two impossible polarities 
was what the barrier was. So this was by no means a simple barrier to overcome. When I came to writing that sentence, it to me was a really simple encapsulation of the depths of despair that I felt. Because would they prefer a gay son or a dead son was genuinely the question that went through my mind more than once a day. Because as, as you set out, I didn't know the word. We didn't know anybody who was gay. We didn't even really see them on TV at the time. And it just felt as though the, the very foundations upon which I existed would rot if I were to engage with my sexuality. And so it felt safer to keep it away. And then it was only when I got to university and I started asking myself these questions. It was only when I got to university that I realized that we don't exist in boxes. Wow. We can try and compartmentalize this feeling from all our other emotions and this urge from all our other actions. But that, the effort, the, that trying to carve ourselves up, I think it's poisonous to us. That trying to carve ourselves up, and that's carving yourself up. I mean, that's using a knife to slice off aspects of your core self, of your core identities. Yeah. Your parents had come from Pakistan. They were um, devout Muslims who came to this country in order to enhance your prospects as much as their own. So that the kind of place that they lived and with the people that they lived, they needed to find a belonging. And your belonging was with them and your love for them and their love for you. But when you acknowledged your gay sexuality, that put mm. you outside the place where you belonged as a kind of, as a threat. And that threat very nearly annihilated you. Yes. Because there wasn't a compromise. There wasn't uh, an alternative, a place to go. So for yeah. people listening who may be in a similar situation, how did you navigate finding a place that you could begin to tell your mum and dad what, what happened? It took years. I should say, I think it's important to say that up top because I think sometimes people say to me like, know, where did you find the courage to tell your parents? And my answer to that is courage is not something that is found. Courage is something that we must grow and it grows over time. And 11,000 prayers later when you wished you weren't gay. Exactly, exactly. And the disgust you had for yourself. Oh, absolutely. It was visceral. You know, I was, but the thing is, is the way that it manifested itself was I, before I would go anywhere near any other men, I'm going to be a bit explicit here, forgive me, but I would, I would like, I, I would think about men. And once my sexual urges had been satisfied, if I put it that way, as soon as that happened, I'd be so disgusted with myself and I'd have to shower and I would be really down the rest of the day because I had not managed to hold the willpower, it had overcome me. Um, and that happened for a very long time. And then when I started seeing men, it was the same. Um, there was one part of me that really wanted to be close to this person I was attracted to. And then another part of me that was absolutely disgusted by the sight of it and the thought of it. Well, those are two 
completely oppositional desires. We need to know that we love and and we belong for all who we are. But in this sexual identity, you wanted to love and belong with your tribe, with your parents, with your community in Walthamstow, with the people that you knew. And yet, where you were attracted to and drawn to and actually only had sexual attraction to put you completely outside of it. And so there wasn't there yes. wasn't a kind of an accommodation. No, I mean, you know, the, the, the thing, that, the image that comes to my mind is, you know, when you've got, let's say you've got somebody who's, is it hung, drawn and yes. horses is the expression, yeah. right? And drawn is the bit where they attach your arms to two different horses and then they oh, rip you apart yes. or something. And I know it sounds awful, but that's what was happening inside. There was, there was, it was almost like one part of me was ripping to go the one way and another part of me was ripping to go the other. And what, what was happening was I was being broken by it. Hung, drawn and courted internally with self-loathing, self-destruction, yeah. the shame, the disgust. Oh my goodness, the kind of agony of that and the, the, mm. the sort of tearing apart, complete visceral tearing apart inside you. And I can see it in your face. Yeah. It's like the scream of it. Yeah. There would be moments where I'd just be kind of, you know, it's that expression crestfallen. Yes. And because you fold into yourself. And for me, that the reason that happened was because I could feel this going on inside and I just, I didn't know what to do with it. I just, I, it really hurt. So the thing that was particularly challenging for you, which is my second question, is these kind of totally polarising, uh, internal, rupturing pulls that you couldn't integrate. Yeah. You couldn't live alongside them both. And so it sounds like it was cut by a thousand knives. Like every day you'd be pulled one way, like I'm never going to look at a man or touch a man. or, And then the next yeah. moment you'd see someone you really fancied and, and want to touch him. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But the, I think the reason why it became so complicated was that on top of that, I had existed um, as a Pakistani in a predominantly Pakistani part of London and then gone to Oxford where everybody was white. And I had existed, I, you know, grew, grew up in a council house and, and at Oxford, everybody was rich. So I had this kind of internal thing going on. But then externally, in my experiences, I was learning that I was poor. I was learning that I was brown or that, that that meant I was different and that came with its own complexities you know my sense of worth or my sense of self uh were they were probably pretty low to begin you know getting into Oxford is nothing no, never something I expected to happen I remember calling them and saying you know did you make a mistake did you I did yeah 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 I I, I called the uh college office and they remembered me because I called um and they they laughed and then when I got there Deborah was the lady's name and I remember she laughed, she said, I remember you, you're the one that called us to check if we hadn't made a mistake. So that was going to university with no sense of self-worth and then learning that you're poor and learning that everybody looks at you and the first thing they think in a nightclub is that you must be the person with the drugs. That had an even more compounding detrimental impact on how I felt about my place in the world. So I'd gone from having a, a really firm understanding of my faith and my culture and my place within it to thinking, okay, well, I can't be that anymore. 
to then suddenly being in this environment where people were talking about going on holidays and second homes and having professional parents and talking about literature and the world and politics in a way that I had never engaged with before. I'd never been introduced to. Um, and it made me feel small and it made me feel like an outsider. And that's not to say that that was the intention of anybody I was discussing those things with. Somebody talking about politics is not designed to be pretentious. Well, maybe you think it is pretentious, but that's not the point. The point is to talk about being engaged with the world. But because my circumstance had always been engaged with putting food on the table or finding a way to survive, having the luxury of talking about society and what's happening and art was just not, not something I'd ever been afforded. And so that sense of not belonging was compounded by these new experiences I was having as an outsider. Yeah, I can really get that, that you already internally kind of split and you discovered there were whole hierarchies Absolutely. that you had no idea about class, about money, about ethnicity. Mm. So you you were an outsider even more, although it also introduced you to a way of life that I, that was exciting. So it was another kind of split. Absolutely. But I, but I, hear, I hear you saying that you felt smaller, but actually also when I've met you, it also was a gateway to get bigger. So again, it was another sort of contradiction. Absolutely. For the first time, I was in an environment where people just wanted to know what I thought and wanted to take the time to hear why and wanted to help me develop my thinking, but also introduced me to concepts and to thinking about the world differently and thinking about the ways in which decisions that politicians make have a direct impact on me as somebody who grew up in a council house. And yes, it allowed me not only to engage with the world in a different way and, and taught me so much. Oxford was in education, not just in law is how I put it. But it also enabled me to inhabit my skin more fully. I was able to find that confidence. I was able to eventually articulate what I thought and I was able to recognize the ways in which I wasn't smaller than everybody else and recognize the ways in which my difference made me more powerful, not less. But that took time. I can hear the excitement in your voice in the sense that over time you found you could expand your internal sense of yourself by expanding the story you told yourself about yourself. Yes. So, that, I mean, one of the things I talk about is the story we tell ourselves is the person I become. And it sounds like you had quite a narrow story before you went to Oxford. And then Oxford, as much as it was very discombobulating, it helped you in the sense it gave you multiple narratives, multiple ways of being, multiple kind of inputs mm. that once you could overcome the kind of clamour of the shock of it all, you could begin to support yourself to be more confident. But how, how did you overcome that feeling small and the threat it initially gave you? What, what supported you? What helped you do that? Well, you know, I, I love the way you put that about the stories we tell ourselves, because when I arrived at university, my story was I'm going to read law, I'm going to become a lawyer, I'm going to marry a woman, I'm going to have kids, I'm going to live next door to my Pakistani parents. So I'm going to be a dutiful boy. Exactly. So those, that's the story that I had told 
told myself, and that's the story I came to university with. And the very first thing in terms of the evolution of my sense of story, the very first thing to happen was that that story was set on fire. But it was burnt to the ground because I had to stop. I had to stop believing that that was my path. And I used that dramatic term set on fire because that's what happened. It was really kind of like a burning to the ground of everything that I had believed would be in my future. It, so, it sounds like a sort of, I think of Moses in the burning bush, but also like demonstrations with burning flags. It sounds, what does fires do? They, they level things. Yeah. And that's exactly what needed to happen. I mean, you know, the, the way I put it is that human beings were a bit like trees. So the way that trees, they grow into these beautiful creatures, but underneath they've got these yeah, roots. Yeah. And I was a young tree and all of the roots that I had already grown, they were informed by my culture and my faith and my sense of family. And essentially what I had to do was rip them all out, uproot everything and start again, because that was the only way of finding a new story. Can I challenge that? Is the root that enabled you to rip out the roots of what your story should have been or was expected was the deepest root, which was your attachment to your mum and dad, that the love they gave you and your siblings yes. enabled you, although it didn't feel like it at the time, to dare to set fire to the pictures that you thought you should follow. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, my parents gave me this superpower of being able to love them and think kindly about the world and others. And I, I always say that I used it against them because I, I, uh, they taught me all this love and then I used it to hold on to them even when they didn't want me to. This episode is sponsored by Better Help. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel uneasy, whether it's a career change, loss of a loved one, or new relationship. Our emotions can certainly leave us feeling overwhelmed. As a psychotherapist, I'm all about finding solutions, but it can certainly be tough to work them out on your own. Therapists are trained to help you get to the root of your emotions and can help you build productive coping mechanisms. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, better help is a great option. It's not only affordable, but can be done in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash therapyworks. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash therapy works all of us as children with our parents or having children is in some ways the most beautiful and the most painful thing that can happen to us that children can you know fill us with pride and love and sparkle and break our hearts you said you held on to them so I'm trying to work out how you held on to them when you set fire to the picture they wanted for you I had no confidence that everything would be okay. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. I had no sense of what would happen, but I grew tired of believing that it was my responsibility to know. Ah, that's interesting. I, I got to the point where I thought, okay, 
this ball has to go into their court because I can no longer be, hold all of these things. I can no longer be the kind of omnipotent one that says, okay, well, I'm not going to tell them about my sexuality. I'm going to move away. I'm going to keep a distance from them because this is how they will react and these will be their emotions and it will be harder for them to know that I'm gay versus for, for me to essentially estrange myself from them. And there was so much thinking and so much management of their feelings in the future, speculatively. Um, and it was exhausting, but it was also not my job. Um, you know, I was a child, I was like 18 years old. That's about boundaries, isn't it? Recognising the limits of your responsibility. And you went right to the edge. And while you felt you had a responsibility for them, for their happiness, to protect them from your sexuality, to keep them happy, as it were. You also denied your capacity to live fully and didn't give them the option of coming through and loving you anyway. Absolutely. And honestly, when I told them, I don't think I, I did it thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to give them the option. It was more... I just can't do this anymore. Yeah, you got to the you you were going to either die or or have to tell them. Yeah, you were suicidal, weren't you? I was, and I think it's because I just felt like there was no way out. I've never I'm terrible at keeping secrets. I guess my own secrets, not other people's, but I was terrible at keeping secrets. They really did contaminate you. Yeah, they polluted my experience of the world, and with each day that passed, the smog grew thicker. And I couldn't live like that. Something had to give. That's such a powerful image, isn't it? The smog grew thicker. So this idea of, you know, it's a very overused term, but being our real selves, our authentic selves, is then what we're feeling and mm. saying match, that there's an authenticity and a congruence. And what you were saying is that you got narrower and narrower and smaller and smaller and more and more kind of hit, disappeared, really, behind mm. the smog of the lies, and it was lies, really. It was lies, um, yeah. And that how secrets and lies not only um, can destroy a relationship, but can destroy you internally. Yeah, and I think that for people listening, the way I would think about it is, imagine you are asked to lie to your loved one, you know, your spouse, and you really don't, feel comfortable lying to them it's that but a hundred times worse because it's inside and it's everything you say and everything you do and every interaction you have um it's there uh sometimes it's more pronounced than other times but it's that discomfort that we feel when we lie but on a scale that is un un unlivable unlivable it's like a monster in a way that just grows and grows and grows the more you lie and then everything you say you just feel the monster not what you're saying yeah and you get good at it i remember i started rewarding myself because i would tell stories about girls i'd met to friends and to family and i would start giving them personas and and i got so good at it that you know, people would ask me a question, I'd make something up on the spot. And then two weeks later, I'd remember it. And then I'd add upon add to it. And I would think to myself, how have I got to this point? And I think it's because lying felt like my only attempt at staying safe. And there is something deeply wrong, deeply problematic with the idea 
that a lie will keep you safe. I mean, it is the kind of nexus of of ill health, isn't it? Mental ill health is that a mm. lie will yeah. keep you safe because it can't possibly keep you safe for all the ways that you've described. Is that it? It separates you from yourself. It builds walls. Yeah. And massive divides between you and the external world, the people, the place, your job, every version of yourself. So you get kind of more and more poisoned and more and more kind of unlivable with living with yourself. So so you got to the edge. So what helped you stay alive and actually tell your parents? Therapy. Very glad to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you might be. Maureen, I actually don't because I've read your book, but I'd encourage other people to read your book and learn about it. Fabulous, Maureen. Yeah. Um, Maureen was a university therapist and I met her in my second year. And the very first thing I said to her was, you can't help me because I've thought about this in every which way and there is no uh solution to my problem and quite pointedly in a way that kind of commanded respect straight off the bat she said well if you think the only solution is to be straight then you're right i can't make you straight but perhaps there's other ways of thinking about this and that kind of challenge within about five minutes of meeting her was exactly what I needed. And and I guess in kinder, softer ways, perhaps afterwards, that's what she did. She was the person who allowed me to look at the world in a different way. And, you know, we, we say that, but if you stop and think about how difficult that is as human beings, right? We, we have this history and of experiences and of influences and of relationships that tell us that these are the things that we are and these are the things that we will be. To have somebody that can come along and turn all of those noises down, right down to zero, and say, hey, turn that off, stand here with me, and look at this situation in a more objective manner. That is a powerful superpower. And it's not a superpower that many of us possess. That really is a powerful superpower. And what you're saying is that we are kind of over-influenced by our pre-existing beliefs and biases. So we look to confirm them all the time. And what Maureen did in that simple sentence to say, yes, maybe you're right, I can't. Essentially, she said, if if what you think you need is to be made heterosexual, then you're right, I can't do that. But if but there are different ways of thinking about it if you'd like to explore them. So by encouraging you to think about different ways of exploring it, she opened a small portal in your mind Mm -hmm. that invited you, and then I guess over time gently kind of offered a bigger space for you to begin to explore different ways of being that wasn't being heterosexual. Uh, Yeah, and and more than just wasn't being heterosexual, allowed me to think about myself and my place in the world based on a relationship with the things that I had at my disposal. I'll give you an example. And I remember I was just after a particular session, I was going to this kind of meeting of more clever people at Oxford and I was really nervous about it. And I said to her, oh, I'm worried that 
I'm going to look stupid or I'm not going to know what people are talking about. And she said to me, Mossin, have you ever been in a situation where once you had basic understanding of what the conversation was about, you haven't been able to meaningfully contribute or, or ask questions that help you get to that place? And I paused and I really thought about the answer. And the answer was no, but it took for somebody else to teach me that that was, that was something I brought to the table, that actually when I turned up to a conversation or when I turned up in a room, I really tried to be present and I really tried to engage meaningfully with concepts and with people and with emotions. And those things I learned by talking to her about them. Because she could give you insight to how you were in a way that you didn't have for yourself. So she expanded your kind of understanding of yourself purely by feedback, by asking this very simple question. Yeah. And in that moment, you could trust that actually you do bring something. Once you've understood what's going on, you do meaningfully contribute to the conversation. She, she saw much more of me than I saw of myself. That is what therapists do, I hope. I mean, it's a big part of what we do is reflect back aspects of yourself that remain entirely hidden, not in a way that there isn't some element of truth. She integrated what you had an idea of in your mind and built on it. It wasn't kind of outside of your experience because that would be too big a step, too big a leap to make. Mm. But can you tell us about telling your mother that you were gay? How did it go? You didn't tell your dad, did you? No, I, I, I told my... Well, I, eventually I told him about three or four years after telling my mum. So she held the secret from him for three or four years. And, and your siblings didn't know either. Well, one of them was a child, so he's 13 years younger than me. He was a kid at the time, but the other one did... I'm the oldest. The middle sibling was the first in my family to know. My dad, I told, as I say, three or four years later, I planned to tell him on the same day I told my mum, but she was worried that he would kick me out of the house. So we didn't tell him on that day. But um, I actually think what happened was she was worried that it was true. And she thought that by telling another person, it would become more true, that she couldn't put it back in the bottle. And so I think what was really happening was she didn't want it to be true. And so by, by not telling my dad, it enabled her to believe that it was, was a falsity. Actually, funnily enough, I wasn't planning on coming out to her. I was offered a job with one of the biggest law firms in the world, and I ended up saying yes to it at Linklaters. And my family, as soon as I was offered that job, I was essentially going to be on more money than my, both my parents combined once I started. So for my family, this was, this was huge. It was transformative, you know? And my mum and dad, they loved planning. Once I got into Oxford, this future presented itself. And it was almost like, I don't know, being given this beautiful bouquet of flowers and then you just keep looking at it and then you keep rearranging it. And like basically wherever you put the rose or the petal, it looks beautiful, but you kind of rearrange it just because you want to look at it again. And that was what my parents did with my future. They saw this beautiful thing and they just wanted to keep moving it around and, and figuring out what the different configurations could be within a very, very narrow vase. The zhuzhing, in a way, was their conviction really about safety. Yeah. That as immigrants in this country, they were under threat every day. You all were from racism, from poverty, from all of the things, from being a minority. Yeah, absence of opportunity. 
absence of opportunity, education, all of the things, and which has big, bad health outcomes as well, mental health and physical health. Mm. And so for you represented to them a golden opportunity for a safe future. It wasn't the money per se. It was the fact that we're safe, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it started at Oxford. It was like we were finally allowed into this club we call Britishness. You were going to belong. You had the key to the door. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And then by me having a key, it meant they were able to go through exactly. That is a real thing, right? I mean, they are, that isn't a false narrative. That is a true narrative. No, absolutely. Because, you know, the the opportunities that are afforded to people that, in my case, went to, go to places like Oxford and Cambridge are unrivaled. You know, Britain is a class-based society and those at the top have the benefit of much more of the fruits of Britain than those at the bottom. Yeah. And we had gone from being at the bottom in one of the poorest parts of the country to suddenly me being the uh, in the circles, the upper echelons of British society because I'd gone to this university that was attended by all of those people. I'd made relationships with all these people and my professional and uh, my personal future had been completely transformed by it. I'd been told, well, you belong here because you have this seeming intellect or ability so you're allowed in so it is it is transformative uh it changes the way that people interact with you it changes the opportunities that you are given most of the people i was at school with would never dream of living the life that i now live and were never given that opportunity no when i say i was the first person for my school to go to oxford i don't say that with pride i think it's an indictment on british society when you have certain schools that send 100 people a year and other schools where it's been going for 30 years and I'm the first. But to go back to your question about coming out to my mum, the reason all of this is relevant is because when I was offered a job at Linklaters, it was yet another indication that this future was coming to fruition, that it was becoming the present. And the reason that was a problem was because my mum and dad started to rely on that future. They started to believe that this is what made them safe and that that future, my future, was in fact also their future. And I didn't mind that. So more more weight for you in some ways. Absolutely. Exactly. But the problem was that all of it was entirely irreconcilable with my sexuality. And I, by this point, decided that I wasn't going to hide. I mean, I didn't think I would necessarily tell them. I thought I would move away or... But I decided I wasn't going to hide from myself right. anymore. So that was a big first step, yeah. Yeah, I'd had a boyfriend, I made gay friends. So I, I just hadn't told them. And so when I was offered this job at Linklaters, my parents, the looks on their faces, it was relief after years and years of trying their best to get out of this circumstance. The way I describe poverty is almost like a ditch. And um, because of our kind of capitalist society, the ditch just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. You keep digging and digging and digging. Yeah. So the rich get further away from you and the poor get further into this ditch. And actually, you just have to scramble and scramble and the scrambling gets more and more exhausting. And suddenly for my parents, when I got into Oxford, the ditch stopped getting deeper. You had a ladder. Exactly. But that relief on their faces brought despair to me because it felt like a lie 
it felt false. And I didn't know what to do with it because I just envisaged this time where their world, this, this, their sense of things, their sense of hope, I would rob them of it. And I hated that. I hated that. Can you imagine, you know, your parents having this hope and then you being the person to steal it from them? You give them the answer to the immigrant's dream of, of I'm going to give you this ladder out of poverty and we're going to be secure and I'm going to have this yeah. future that you really want. And then with the other hand, as you're giving it to them, if you tell them that you're gay and you come out to them, you are robbing them of that safety at, at the moment that you give it to them. So I told my mum that I was going to move out as soon as I started working. And to her, that was the mo most kind of white Western thing I could say, that, oh, I'm leaving. And it felt like a betrayal, you know? And, and, and actually, in that moment, I didn't realise it. I'd robbed them of that relief because suddenly they felt like, oh, well... You're abandoning us. Exactly. And that's when... And my mum didn't speak to me for three days after that conversation when I said, I'm going to move out as soon as I start working. And they lived in London. You know, It wasn't even like I was going to be moving that far away. But it, it, there was something deeper. It was uh, it, to, to them, it represented, an, as you say, an abandonment. Um, and after three days of having received the silent treatment from my parents and really never having experienced that before. I had um, come to the end of the road. I'd been carrying this upcoming car crash for so long in my mind. And I just thought, I can't do this anymore. It's not fair. You know, it's not fair that I was born gay and I'm told that this is somehow something I should be ashamed of and apologize for. And yet now, when I try and come up with a solution, which is to leave, I am still accused of behaving in a way that is reprehensible. And I can hear the anger in your voice. It's like outrage. Absolutely. And anger can be the force that you need to overcome. Yeah. And so I went into my mum's room to try and talk to her, not to even tell her about my sexuality, but just to try and talk to her and say, this is ridiculous. You can't give me a silent treatment just because and it doesn't change anything. And as soon as I tried to speak, and I honestly, it just came from nowhere. All of the emotion, all of the heartache, all of the ways in which I had held myself together for, by that point, let's say 19, 20 years, they unraveled and I burst into oh, tears. Yeah. But I burst into tears in such a way that you as a parent, you know that there's something really yeah. wrong. And I ran out of the room and I went into my bedroom and I, I didn't have a lock, so I leant against the door because I knew she would follow me. And then she followed me. She prized open the door and I was, I was weeping. Um, and eventually I just told her. And so it wasn't I intended to tell her. It was that the, the, this circumstance, actually this really happy circumstance of being offered this amazing job forced my hand. The sort of breakdown was an unexpected breakthrough in the end that you... You yes. unraveled that it was the tipping point, you, you know. Mm. It wasn't a decision, it wasn't a plan. It's just the overwhelming no. emotion. I can't do this anymore. So, I mean, that is, and I know there's much more to your story, and I encourage people to read your book to get your full story, but we only have this time now. So, if you know there's an eight year old girl or boy who's listening, in the 69 countries where it's still illegal to be gay or has the class issues mm. 
financial issues that you're talking about, what have you learned that could support them to be true to themselves? Mm. Whatever the thing that you're ashamed of or hiding, it's really about protecting people you love and the protection in the end destroys yourself and the relationship and it's only love over time and these things are not an overnight process that can enable you to survive, isn't it? And your parents now accept you, love you. Absolutely. Um, and your siblings. Yeah. I mean, they are extraordinary. I have enormous respect for them because that is a big old mountain they've climbed. Oh, a- absolutely. I say that to write a memoir feels so self-absorbed, particularly when you're in your 30s. But I, I say that to the extent that there are any heroes in this book, it's not me, it's yeah. them. They've really come a long way. Mm. So what would you say to someone who's struggling now? Um, I, so bear with me. There are kind of two related points. Um, I, I really like going to the gym, but I'm not actually that good at it. Um, and I kind of sometimes lift weights. And I have this trainer called Alex. And sometimes he'll put a really heavy weight in front of me. And he'll say, Mossin, lift this, lift this. And I'll say, no, 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 I can't, I can't. And he says, you can't yet. And he emphasizes the yet. And I think I feel that way about issues of identity, but also personal struggle. You know, it could be that you're going through a divorce. Like sometimes things are really heavy to lift. So it's acknowledging it's maybe too heavy now. And the yet is now isn't forever to have hope. Absolutely. It takes time. It's not something that, you know, if, if somebody puts a really heavy weight in front of me, there's no reason I should be able to lift it straight away. But that doesn't mean that I won't always be able to. And then relatedly, um, I saw this anecdote on TV and it was about this little boy and his mum and they're in a park and this little boy sees this big boulder and he says to his mum, oh, mum, I want to lift that. And she says, go and lift with all your strength and you'll be able to, to do so. And he gets over and he tries to lift it and he can't. And he says to his mum, mama, you told me that if I tried, used all my strength, I'd be able to do this. She gets up, she goes over, she grabs the other end and they lift mm. it together. And she says to him, now you are using all of your strength. And the reason I tell that story is because particularly for young queer people, you don't always have that parent who can fulfill that function. But that doesn't mean that you have to lift those heavy things alone. There are wonderful people in the world who you will find who will help you to lift, who will help you to make that journey a little bit easier because you shouldn't have to lift alone. That's a wonderful story. You shouldn't have to lift alone. And for you, I guess it was your friends that loved you at Oxford, Maureen, Mm -hmm. your brother. You had a particular girlfriend, Mm. I think. Yeah, so uh, it was uh, Dahlia, yeah. It's Layla in the book, but... um, Okay. Yeah. I Actually, funnily enough, some people, they read the book and they they say, oh, you didn't thank Layla. I was like, oh, because her name's Dahlia. But (laughs) I don't think she minds me saying it anymore. And so that is the lasting thing, isn't it? That in the end, it is the love of others that enables us to survive even the worst, most darkest things that we face. Letting others love us can help us love ourselves or our multiple senses of self. Yes, I don't think it can help. I think that without it, it's not possible. I think they're inextricably linked because I don't think, unless you're a sociopath, um, I don't think it's possible to love yourself without experiencing people's reactions to you and being able to say oh actually i i am able to bring joy or bring something interesting or to care for somebody or to be kind to somebody and that person responds to me in this way because i think that by understanding other people's experiences of you you're able to recognize the things that make you unique and 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 
strong and, and special. Because it, it, it's an iterative process and you grow inside as yes. other people move towards you and you can see yourself in them and that that expands you internally and then yes. you have more externally. So the whole sense of yourself and confidence in yourself grows. Mm. I mean, that's a beautiful way to end. But just in case, do you have a question for me? I had a very particular set of circumstances that I'm really grateful to the world and to the, the, people, the loved ones we've just spoken about for being able to say I've overcome. But I think that the question I have is, how do we, how do we manage when everything's okay? So at the moment, touch wood, I'm happily married. My parents love my husband. My family are for the most part okay and healthy. And it fills me with fear because I wait for the next thing to go wrong. So I guess my question to you is, how do we manage when things are actually okay, but also not just manage, how do we thrive when things are okay? That is such an interesting question. I guess where your question takes me is that your history of loss and suffering and fear is part of you. Mm. It's always in you and will influence how you see your present and your future. And so the work, I guess, for you is letting the story that you're living now of safety and happiness and love to trust it mm. because you know it's in you, but it doesn't sound like you fully integrated it as this is part of me now. This is the new me. No. And so the work, if you had a therapist, would be how do I dare let myself know that this isn't going to be taken from me, that I dare trust and believe that I can be fully myself, I can be fully loved and known and have a life that I've dreamed of and let myself feel safe within that new life. Mm. Thank you. I think that makes complete sense. Thank you so much, Mosin. That's a wonderful conversation. You are a wonderful man. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Firstly, I had so many questions, which makes me think I just need to read his book because yeah. <laughs> like from the beginning, I just kept thinking, yeah, but what happened? Like tease it out for so long. Mm. And I just kept thinking, but like, what happens? Like, did they accept him? How did they react? And then I was also sort of, I had lots of questions about his relationship with his religion and how that affected it. And is he still religious? And I just, I felt like there's, there were so many things that were sort of left unanswered but if from a therapeutic perspective mm -hmm. what do you think gave you so many questions is it because an area of someone's life 
that is new to you. So it takes you in unknown places. So you have more questions. I think it was because the sort of original challenge was sort of posited as this part of my identity that was very secret and torturous. And how did shift from that into this kind of like integrated whole person and I guess there were so many sort of components of that and I sort of wanted to hear about all of them. Mm. I guess it was so clear that at the point of arrival he'd arrived at a very extraordinary place so you could hear the sort of pain of the beginning and you could feel the arrival and you wanted to know the whole journey and also it made me want to know about his parents journey because I was thinking about what was it that they drew on? What's that we can draw on when we're faced with something that's very hard to accept? That seems, from what he said, there's you know the, the strength of the love, the strength of their bond is what allowed them to stay together. But I imagine it was probably, a, with all these things, it's a rocky road when you're trying to come to terms with someone you deeply love who maybe isn't, they aren't or you aren't, what you expected. Well, I, I do think this was a particular challenge which was to do with religion and a family, the importance of belonging, particularly as an immigrant in this country where you feel an outsider already, and then the threat of being gay and the threat from being a religious Muslim, that put them under, so they, they had a sort of heightened sense of threat. But I think all of us as parents are challenged when our children behave or make choices that are different from what we'd like. Difference is challenging in families. Mm. And there's small differences, which have probably smaller intensities in the family relationship. And bigger differences have, have enormous ones. And some families rupture and don't reconcile. And so I think both of your points, right? So was it the love that in eventually the love overcame the differences and yours, um, like the story they tell themselves, they must have told themselves a different story in order to get to the love. I think some of the answers come from that. I think also, touching a bit on what Soph was talking about, it made me think a lot about the number of transgender and gender questioning teens that I've seen in my private practice and the sort of massive increase of that in the last Mm. few years and how incredibly incredibly hard parents find that and it really feels like a modern day generational divide like a proper generational divide where you have parents who are scared that their children have been sort of influenced or kidnapped by tiktok they have a lot of fears around my teen is going to make this decision and it's irreversible and it's going to have all these consequences now for the rest of their life and they're still really young and we shouldn't be allowing them to make these decisions. And then you have teens who are either similarly to Mosin being really torn apart by the different parts of their identity and what they feel like is acceptable by their family. But then you also have the teens who are like, no, this is who I am. (laughs) And you can either accept it or not. And actually, for my generation, gender isn't such a binary. And it isn't that once I've made this decision, I can never change it. And I think it's such a challenge for teens and parents. And similarly to Mosin, sometimes it really does come to a point where it's either you allow a trans or a gender questioning teen to follow this path, or really they are facing a life or death situation. And I think that that is something that is happening a lot, or certainly that I see in my clinical practice. 
so it makes me think of two things. But one of them, when you said, you know, there is a life or death situation, that issue of feeling suicidal when there is one of the strongest drivers of those feelings is a feeling of hopelessness, of despair, that there is no way out, that there is no mm. uh, solution, the feeling that there isn't an answer. And his split was, would they prefer a dead son to a gay son? That it felt like in the story that he told, and possibly this is some of the work you do and with the families you work with, but trying to create the sense of possibility that there is another way to see the situation. And in that sense, what you are doing is creating hope. And that's one of the great antidotes to feeling suicidal, right? Is there is a possibility that this could be different. There are things, maybe not the things you think you want to change, but there are other things and other ways of relating to this same situation that create hope. Yes, I think creating hope and also when you have a situation in which there are very polarised views finding some way to understand the other perspective and kind of build a bridge. Mm. I think the building the bridge across that is recognising where you can have control and where you can't have control. Yeah. Because those polar opposites butt up against each other if you both have to be right and have control over the other one. I also think that that is really hard when you have a teenager because they don't actually have a lot of control in a legal sense so I think sometimes it's part of the job as a parent and as a teenager like the skills to build are validation skills you do not have to agree with each other but you can still validate that you understand your teen's perspective and that can be really powerful and that actually was the first step with Mosin the fact that his mum stayed in relationship with him, although it was very difficult and painful for a long time, was a behavioural validation. She didn't leave him. She didn't abandon him. And over time, they did tell their dad. And I think one of the things um, with the validation, what I got from him, and I think is useful universally, is that these things are so difficult and so complicated. They take an enormous amount of time. And that idea of not yet, but be patient and go slowly because you put yourself under too much pressure when you want an answer, a fix too fast. Mm. Not yet. I really liked the not yet, the weightlifting analogy. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really powerful. And, the, and again, it's back to that slightly that hope thing. of Just because it's not OK now doesn't mean it will never be OK. That, that sense of not yet, things change. One thing that we can all be sure of is that change will happen. Yeah. And when you're in it, you never believe it well. But also it made me think about how when he was talking about the part of his story about the secrecy and shame, how that blocks change. True. That it was only possible for movement to happen once he was able to grow that courage that he talked about. And that secrecy breeds shame, in my experience with clients. The more secret you keep it, the more the feelings of shame and self-disgust grow. And there's nowhere to go in that place of self-hatred. And it's only really by letting the light in that you can start to de-shame your experiences, whether that is with people who are initially the most safe people, the least non-judgmental people in your life. And then over time, you can you can take more risks with people who might have stronger reactions. And I actually got quite tearful when he told that story of the sort of little analogy he does of picking up the rock and your full strength was when someone else comes along and picks up the rock and how deeply entwined we all are in our sense of well-being through relationship, that there can be this sort of false narrative that if we're struggling, if we're suffering, it's our own individual failure. And we have to push up the rock ourselves on our own. Mm-hmm. 
And I think when you're very isolated because there's something that you feel is unacceptable or your family or a community are not in a place to accept you, I think it is so important in terms of mental health to try and find places of safety for those parts of yourself that are unaccepted by your community because isolation is death that psychologically it's it's an enormously psychologically threatening experience to feel that you do not belong in the community that you're a part of and so I think if you are in that situation to try and find whether you go online to charities that support uh, whatever challenge you're facing find peer local peer groups to approach mine to find some small communities where that part of you can belong for the period of time that you're navigating that bigger dilemma about how to integrate the parts of yourself with your community or your family because complete isolation psychologically I think is is very hard to survive beautifully put okay beautifully put so to put it together I think what you said is that love is in the end the thing that's curative but unless we dare to have the courage to trust that the love is within ourselves and within others if we defend facing our difficulties and speaking them they stay fixed but when we dare to face them and speak them then they have the capacity to change and for that we do need the support of other people and that you might need to go hunting for the safe spaces where you can start to do that what you and him talked about that iterative process of learning to love yourself through others at times whether that's in therapy or in groups might not always initially be with your family if that's the dilemma you're in so we need to end it there. Thank you both so much. And a particular thank you to Mosin Zaidi for being so open and giving me and all of us an insight into a world that I think we don't get to see very often. And for those of you that are listening, if you're enjoying the podcast, do please rate and review because it allows other people to find us. Until next week. Bye.